Hello, this is the Our Rivers podcast, hosted by the Forever Our Rivers Foundation. We feature the people making a difference for healthy rivers all across the West. Look for our logo to support the businesses that fund healthy rivers. For more information about our work, visit foreverourrivers.org. Hello, I'm Clark Tate, host of the Our Rivers podcast, a production of the Forever Our Rivers Foundation. We're building a movement to help you access and enjoy healthy rivers. Today, we're talking to award-winning author, photographer, landscape architect, and river conservationist Tim Palmer. We discuss his very long career in writing, river running, and working on behalf of rivers, as well as one of his newer books, A Field Guide to Rivers of the Rocky Mountains. We don't go into too much detail about the book itself because you're going to buy it and read it, right? That's actually how you can support today's episode, by going to our online bookshop at bookshop.org slash shop slash Forever Our Rivers. There you will find most of the books we talk about in today's episode, including many written by Tim. 10% of proceeds go back to Rivers. Another portion goes to supporting Tim's incredible work. We'll link to it in our show notes. So settle in as we talk about Tim's lifelong love for flowing waters, the formative experiences that allowed Rivers to creep into his soul, and those early mistakes that could have cost him his life. Tim, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing just great, thanks. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. And where are you calling in from? I live in Oregon on the south coast, actually, a little place called Port Orford, just north of the mouth of the Rogue River. Is that your local river, your sort of home water? Yeah, yeah. There's a more local one called the Elk, which is a fabulous stream, but smaller. You know, the Rogue is kind of world-renowned as a whitewater trip and fishing river, and uh, that's just 20 miles south of us. How often do you get to it? Not that often, really, but try to do a trip a year at least. Well, we're here today to talk about a recent book of yours, The Field Guide to Rivers of the Rocky Mountains, published by Falcon Guides. And it's a wonderful book. Congratulations. That's quite an accomplishment. Well, thank you. But you've written 30 books about rivers. Is that the right count? I feel like it might be more now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, it might be. I kind of lose count, but that's a pretty good estimate, yes. Yeah, after <laughs> yeah. like a dozen books, you're like, yes, just one more. I know, yeah, there are two new ones this year. But yes, you're, you're on track. And they cover uh, rivers and the environment and outdoor adventure, sort of the whole gamut. They do. I write a lot about rivers and river conservation but also about forest issues and adventure travel in other respects. I have a book called Pacific High, which is a nine-month journey through the coastal mountains from Baja to Kodiak Island. Oh, wow. You know, I've written History of River Conservation and a modern-day book about it called Lifelines and a number of guidebooks, which tend to, uh, unlike a lot of guidebooks, I don't focus strictly on whitewater, although that is included. But I focus more on the rivers themselves in a broad sense and a natural sense with a focus on natural history, but also with plenty of tips on where to go for hiking and boating and even some on fishing. Yeah, I really appreciated that in the guidebook, all the different activities that you included on the rivers. You know, you've taken photos for these books and you've won awards for them like the Sierra Club's Ansel Adams Award. 
And you're also a conservationist and you won the first ever Lifetime Achievement Award from American Rivers. Is that correct? Yeah. And the embarrassing thing is that was a lifetime ago. And uh, I think it was 1988. I think that is something to be incredibly proud of. Yeah, well, thank you. Multiple lifetimes of achievement in conservation is not something that many people can brag about. What is it about rivers for you? This has obviously been a, a multiple lifelong passion. Yeah, well, you know, rivers are the lifelines of the planet. If you want to see what's really lively about the world, go to a river and watch the flow of water. You know, along that line, they're important to so much of life. You know, wildlife and fish, of course, require rivers and clean water and healthy rivers. And so do we. You know, we need them for our water supply and our state of mind as well. I often reflect back to my very first river trip. And I happened to be working as a summertime landscape architect for Sawtooth National Forest in Idaho. And I'm from Pennsylvania originally, so this was a big change for me, you know, coming to the Rocky Mountains. And one weekend, I borrowed a raft from the full-time guy who was the backcountry ranger and took it down to the Salmon River and jumped in and kicked off from shore. And within minutes, I just said, oh, my gosh, this is the best thing ever. (laughs) You know, it was just fabulous. I wanted to do it every day. There's the visceral element of just the splash and the sun and the water and the sound. Then there's everything you see. You know, this is the way to tour the world, really, for me. And it all goes together to contribute to what I call total engagement. Mm -hmm. There's the adventure of it and the challenge of it. It's all just so engaging that the rest of the world disappears. And it's just that one thing, it's you and the river and this place you're traveling through. And when that happens, the world just makes a lot more sense. You've simplified it, even though what you're seeing is very complex. It's just you and the river. Ultimately, when you come back to the other world, it makes a little more sense too, because you're refreshed. I have a new outlook after I escape and get to the real natural world in such a complete and engaging way. To me, river trips do all of that, and they do it at so many levels. You know, just the beauty of it is all worthwhile. And then there's the joy of motion and the challenge of whitewater. And if you go with other people, which most of us do, they tend to be the nicest people in the world. You know, (laughs) I met my wife on a river trip. Well, there you go. That's an endorsement. (laughs) Yeah, right. I think maybe most fundamentally, River trips are a way to travel. They're a way to see the country and to see the world. And it's a world you don't see through the windshield. It's the real thing. And there you are just streaming by. You know, gravity's doing the work. Go gravity, not gasoline. Ultimately, it just ends up being this wonderful way of living by getting back out into nature and traveling through a landscape in such an enlightening and revealing way. And in the beginning of the Rocky Mountain Guidebook, you say in the pages that follow, let me help you to see and experience these extraordinary places. Why is it so important for you to write about this so extensively, you know, over 30 books to help people experience these same places? 
Well, there's just no end to it. You know, it's it's an unlimited topic in both in terms of physically the rivers themselves and also in what they mean to us and their importance. So I've written about rivers from the standpoint of conservation history. I've written a book about modern day issues of river conservation. I've written about specific rivers, a whole book about the Yakageni in Pennsylvania, oh, wow. which is one of the most floated whitewater rivers. A book about the Snake River in Idaho and Oregon and Washington and Wyoming. And a book about the Columbia River, which is even bigger. You know, it's the largest river on the West Coast. So uh, I've written guidebooks to California and Oregon and the Rocky Mountains. And I also write about other things. I write about forest issues and other aspects of adventure travel. There's just a lot of material there that has taken me to 30 books, and I'm working on another one right now. So what did you set out to do in this particular book, in the Rocky Mountain Guidebook? In my guidebooks, I like to acquaint readers with rivers in a new way that really brings not just the opportunities for going there and having a great time and learning something and doing something really fun and engaging, but also for learning about why rivers are important. In my guidebooks, I take a focus on natural history to really reveal what is there in the natural world, why it's important to us. And then I really provide all the details people need to go there to see this place, mainly by hiking and by boating, but both, you know, so I cover trails along rivers and also boating, whether by canoe or kayak or raft or drift boat or stand up paddleboard, whatever you want to do. Which is so great because even just hiking by a river, you can sneak up on so much wildlife. And like you're saying, it's part of the very animated piece of every landscape. There's a lot going on there. So it's one of the best places to walk. Yes, yes. Yeah. And you do a great job. In the front of this book, there's a geology section, there's a hydrology section, there's climate. You know, I've been studying this stuff for a long time and I feel like I've learned so much and connected things differently, which is what I love so much about reading. It's how somebody else thinks about the interconnectedness of all of the issues that you're interested in. And I have to assume that you've sort of been researching this your whole life. Can you tell us about some of the most memorable moments in these Rocky Mountain rivers that you've experienced while, while sort of researching this book throughout your life? I know that's a big well of experience to draw upon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How much time do we have here? <laughs> As, I mean, I'm, I'm open all day. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh let me tell you about one little incident that was, to me, in the heart of the Rocky Mountains, the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho. And uh, as I mentioned before, I worked there for a summer as a landscape architect. And one evening, the, uh, the landscape architect I worked with said, Tim, I'm going fishing for salmon down at the river. You want to come? And uh, I said, sure. So I went down and I didn't fish because I didn't even have a license yet at that point. But I sat there along the banks, not to sound like ancient history, but this was 1967. And there were still strong salmon runs up that river. These Chinook salmon, three feet long, that swam the longest migration on Earth for a fish 900 miles up from the ocean to get where they could spawn and continue the fate of their species. You could still see them coming up the river. 
And I sat there as the sun dipped low behind the sawtooth and the light became warm and muted. And I stared at that flowing water, which alone was beautiful enough. But then I saw the back of one of these salmon surface like a porpoise and go back under the current. And then I saw another and another and another. And I thought, oh my gosh, this river is alive. It's not just the liveliness of the water, but it's full of life under the surface, which at that time really, uh, you know, showed itself in this incredible run of salmon. Those fish are now imperiled. They're endangered, threatened. Many of the runs are extinct because of dams that have been built downstream that were just being built at that time. The four lower Snake River dams were still being completed back then. They hadn't really taken their big bite out of the salmon population yet the way they have now. It was a transformative moment for me when I realized that this river didn't just look lively. It was full of life and full of vitality in a way that that I really connected to and that ultimately I became committed to protecting. It means a lot to hear you say that. I've seen salmon runs particularly living around uh, Point Reyes, California for a time. But they're very small. They're certainly not 900 <laughs> miles from the ocean. And it's, it's wild to me. It, it hits me again and again how quickly we lose the knowledge of what our planet was capable of, what abundance could look like. If you've never seen it, you don't understand that. And it's so important to share these stories. We understand what's possible and we understand what we've lost. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to understand reading about salmon and hearing about salmon That's a free nutrient delivery system. That is free food coming to you 900 miles for people, for bears, for trees. All the rotting salmon bring a lot of nutrients from the ocean that the trees absorb that are important for their life cycle. 900 miles of food just strolling up to you. Right. Dozens, actually hundreds of species, if you count insects and so forth, depend on the run of these fish. And that's just one example of the connections of life along rivers, you know, from top to bottom and from the tiniest to the largest. There are many of these kind of connections, so they're all quite profound and important to us. You know, another moment, if I could just tell you about another experience, it goes back even further. The Yakagani River in Pennsylvania, as I mentioned, is one of the most popular whitewater rivers in the country. But I happen to be a very lucky guy. My ancestors moved to the Yakagani River in 1787, colonial times. And I, as a kid, I still had relatives there. So my family would go back. It wasn't that far, 100 miles from the Appalachian foothills where I lived to Ohio Pile State Park on the Yakagani, where all the white water was. I'm not even sure. I think I was about 12 years old. I was out walking alone as usual on a warm summer evening along that river. And I went down to one of the rapids, which I know is now called Entrance Rapid. And I sat down on a big block of sandstone there and just listened and watched that river flow. And the rhododendrons were blooming, so they smelled really sweet in the air. And I was away from the road and just listening and watching. and. Pretty soon, the rest of the world disappeared, and it could have been a thousand miles away. There was nothing but me and the river there. And suddenly it occurred to me, even as a little kid, 
it occurred to me that this place was perfect. And I knew why it was perfect. It was perfect for the simple reason it had been left alone. It was natural. So there, at a very early age, that magic of flowing water just somehow seeped into my soul. And I wanted more. I didn't know how I was going to get it, but I wanted more. That, too, was a very formative moment in my life. Absolutely. I also grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and Big Reed Island Creek ran around my parents' farm. You couldn't get me away from the creek. Spent all my time there. And the rhododendrons, when the flowers would fall into the creek and float by, I was always in a state of absolute bliss. It was just like living in a Disney cartoon. And what privileged upbringings we had to have that time with the river to understand deeply as a child how special. I know it. it's a common story. It makes me very concerned that the kids don't get that today. Yeah. You know, we need to really work on getting kids out to experience the real world the natural world. And being around rivers is one of the great ways to do that. And you're offering this great service with your guidebooks. Oh, well, thank you. Well, thank you. Super selfishly, I've spent a ton of time on Southwestern rivers. So the Colorado, the Dolores, the Green. Do you have any cool stories from those rivers? Gosh, you know, of course, the Colorado is epic mm-hmm. through the Grand Canyon. And I was really fortunate to be able to raft it in my little Avon, 14-foot Avon adventure. Oh, awesome. Some years ago. And, uh, you know, in a way, it's the opposite of, of some of the smaller rivers that have been so formative in my youth in that it's enormous and overpowering. But again, the magic of the place really fills you up there. And so that's an extraordinary one. You know, the amazing thing about the desert rivers is that their water mostly comes from somewhere else. It comes from mountain ranges that are not in the desert. So they, more than most, really bring home the connection of watersheds. And they really show how important it is that the headwaters up above nourish the big flow down below. And ultimately, that Colorado ends up nourishing millions of people for water supply to the degree that it's totally dried up before it gets to the Gulf of California. So the Southwestern rivers are really, uh, really wonderful illustrations of those connections, headwaters to see, and how vital they are to everybody, not just there, you know, like we were paddling or rowing a raft, but to people who actually use and need that water downstream. Absolutely. Did you, in your journeys, ever come across a river that was particularly and obviously connected to the community surrounding it? Any town that you've passed through that you were like, wow, they're they're making a wonderful use of this river and enjoying it and nourishing it, protecting it? There are a ton of those today because the greenways movement has become very big in America. You know, when this is one of the things that gives me hope. You know, when I started working with rivers and river conservation, many of them were just forgotten parts of communities that people just sort of wanted to not deal with. You know, they were reminded of them when they flooded. Today, a lot of people now recognize how important and how valuable these can be to our communities, not just in terms of the water we drink, which of course we need, but also in terms of the community image and structure and amenities. Consider the Boise River. 
through Boise, Idaho. You know, in the 50s, it was just sort of the backside of industry and food processing. And now there's been a greenway corridor acquired by the city and other levels of government with a bikeway and trails and boating possibilities for 10 and 20 miles through and above and below the city of Boise. It actually is the uh, brightest, most wonderful thing about that whole place, you know, is the river through its urban corridor. One of my first jobs was working as a county planner in north central Pennsylvania in a city called Williamsport. Because you're a landscape architect by training, correct? That's right. And the west branch of the Susquehanna flowed through our county. And one of the jobs I did that I'm maybe most proud of was writing a report that really promoted the use of that river in a positive kind of way and that identified the amenities and the values of it to people. So we launched some programs to protect open space there, developed trails and bikeways along it to zone the floodplains so that what wasn't already developed would not be developed, and also to begin programs of acquisition of flood-prone properties, particularly repeatedly flood-prone properties, so that we can get out of that cycle of flooding and destruction and rebuilding and flooding again and reinstitute riparian open space along the river. You know, I left there long ago, but the guy I worked for and the programs that we started then have continued until today when there's a movement to establish greenway connections the whole way up and down the Susquehanna River for 200 miles. So it's another very hopeful sign. Yeah. So that helps people enjoy the river, get out in the greenery that grows along it and gives the river room to flood without destroying property. Seems like a better way to go about things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you had any major trials in your journey of experiencing rivers, either a particularly challenging event while running a river or just a time when you felt a little overwhelmed by all the challenges that rivers are facing? Well, Yeah, again, how much time do we have? (laughs) Gosh, what would be a good example? Just just the physical challenge, one of the memorable, again, formative times for me was I was canoeing the James River in Virginia. Through Richmond? uh, Above Richmond. Okay. But into Richmond, and I launched, and I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to the weather report, which is one of the lessons that newcomers to river running might always want to be aware of. And after my first day or two, it started raining, and it rained for a day and a half. And suddenly, I was on flood flows on a river that was not particularly, well, wasn't at all threatening where I put in or for most of my trip. But suddenly there was a lot of water there pushing rapidly downstream. And I ended up in the city of Richmond where it drops over the fall line and there are intense rapids there. So all of this, you know, ended up being kind of scary. Yeah. You know, there I was. I'm not that experienced a paddler and I was in way over my head. I ended up bailing out at the upper end of the city of Richmond and having to climb over chain link fences and cross canals just to get where I could get out of the river and escape. So it was a good wake up call that, you know, we're dealing with with features here that are, of course, very 
beautiful and alluring, but they also are what they are, you know, and this is the natural world and it's full of surprises and full of elemental power and ultimately with with events and situations that can challenge us in big ways. So that's a really nice segue because I wanted to ask you your best advice for people who are very new to rivers, who want to spend more time with them, want to give their kids more exposure to them. And obviously hiking by a river, it's still very important to pay attention to the weather report because of potential flooding, particularly in the Southwest. But it does seem like another step up to think about canoeing down a river or rafting down a river. And in the field guide to rivers of the Rocky Mountains, you mention connecting with outfitters to get you safely down a river. What are some other pathways to get more people knowledge they need to be safe and make safe decisions on rivers because they are so dynamic? Remember, this is a learning experience. And if you're new to it, read about it. Talk to people who have done this kind of thing. There are a lot of uh, boating clubs and social groups, you know, that one can join and, uh, and gain the experience from other people who have done a lot more than you have. We might have friends that are boaters, you know, who could help us to get started. Going with an outfitter is a great way for someone who really doesn't have any river experience to get an introduction or to be able to go on a more difficult trip. You know, like some of the big, you know, like the New River in West Virginia or the Middle Fork of the Salmon in Idaho, you know, where the challenges are greater. That's a good way to start and see if you like it. But be open to learning. Be cautious. Remember, you have to be aware of a, a lot of variables like the weather and the water level. Ultimately, rivers are great vehicles for learning lots of things, not just about the water and the stream, but about things like humility. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, being able to address challenges and dangers and hazards in what I call a really creative way. These are good things to learn to deal with throughout life. We have challenges of all kinds. And the rivers present a real physical challenge. And just kind of learning how to deal, even just the process, is a really valuable thing. For example, you know, we have to be able to deal with difficulties or dangers when they come up. But it's even more important to be able to identify what the dangers will be ahead of time. And that applies to rivers and spades, but to all of life. So by learning to approach river adventure with that in mind, teaches us lessons about the rest of life that are really vital and crucial for us to know. You know, it's not just fun and it's not just an adventure and it's not just a learning experience, but river running can be something that enriches our life in many ways and teaches us many kinds of things if we're open to it. And I think it's a particularly apt metaphor for life because once you get on the river, you're in the stream, you can't just step off the trail. The river is setting the pace in a lot of ways. Life can be like that. Events can kind of speed around you and, and you don't always have a lot of control. We're, we're never in total control. And so there are these lessons of learning to deal with the challenges around us and to recognize the hazards that are there, to be careful when we need to be, to be adventurous when we can be. 
and you know, with, with metaphors and with parallels to the rest of life. So with that in mind, do you have any river-related resources, either other books that you've written or websites that you check every time that you would recommend to somebody who's really interested in getting into boating? For almost any region or state and many watersheds, there are now guidebooks that cover details about where to go and what to see. And I've done these books for Oregon, California, and four of the Rocky Mountain states, Montana, Idaho, Colorado, and Wyoming. Those are good places to start. And yes, the internet's full of sources. Now you can just look up the name of a river, look up river running and the river name, and you'll get some information. It's not always great information, but it's a good place to start also. But I look at those other guidebooks, you know, by reputable authors, you know, and start with awareness of what they have to say. They're basic fundamental books about how to go boating. You know, the American Red Cross has a great one. It's just a classic guide to canoeing, and it tells you how to do it and how to identify hazards and be safe and, you know, how to deal with river rescue and things like that. Just a few years ago, I had a big book come out called America's Great River Journeys. And in it, I highlighted what I considered 50 of the really most wonderful river trips in America. They're 200 color photos. So it gives kind of the big picture and shows you what these places are like, but also provides details on where to go, what the difficulty is, you know, where do you put in, where do you take out, what particular hazards you need to watch for. Yeah, so I'd point people to that. And then, of course, for more detail to, to my new guidebook about the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, that's a great one-two punch, kind of the overview to get people excited and choose general direction, and then they can go in for the details. Yeah. You know, there are other books, too, that uh, that are not of the guidebook nature, but about rivers that are truly remarkable. There's one that I've read and reread mm-hmm. over and over called The Emerald Mile. Oh, yes. By Kevin Fidarko, a remarkable author. I mean, this book should have won the Pulitzer Prize. It's the best book I've ever read. And it's ostensibly about some sort of crazy river guides on the Colorado who wanted to set a speed record for boating through the Grand Canyon. I really don't care at all about speed (laughs) records. Yeah. But that's the thread that he used. But more so, the book is really about the river itself and the magic of that place and the qualities of it. And it's built around then the biggest flood in modern history there in 1983. And the the challenges that presented, not only to the river runners, but to the people managing the dam, Grand Canyon upstream. It's just remarkable language and a remarkable sense of suspense. So it's a great book. Some wonderful fiction and essays have been written by David James Duncan. Another wonderful author who's, who loves rivers. A friend of mine named Stephen Hawley wrote a great book called Recovering a Lost River about the Snake River and the salmon runs that are endangered there. Jim Lekatoich, a biologist, has written fabulous books about salmon of the Northwest and the problems of hatcheries, which surprise many people. Many people think fish hatcheries would just be great for fish, but they're actually really bad for wild fish in most cases. So there are a lot of wonderful books like that that 
people can read if they want to learn more. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. Something you mentioned earlier, you were saying that communities embracing the river gives you a lot of hope. And you said you could talk more about what does give you hope for rivers, because you do mention in the book a lot of the things that are impairing them, invasive species and climate change reducing flows. And, you know, we're using a lot of water as people and we're and we're putting pollutants back into the water and and those salmon aren't swimming up those rivers anymore. (laughs) So what what else does give you hope? Josh Clark, you know, my career with rivers has now spanned about 50 years or so. And in that time, we've made tremendous progress in the laws that we've had passed. We didn't even have the Clean Water Act when I started working on this stuff. In the policies of government at various levels, I mean, even in rural Oregon here, we have zoning countywide, you know, which includes floodplain zoning, and it's not always administered very well or enforced properly, but we have it. We never used to. The water in many of our urban rivers is much cleaner in terms of the really egregious pollution we once had from sewage and really blatant poisonous industrial waste. We now have a plague of toxins that are harder to see and smell and know about that are just as bad or even worse. Are you talking about microplastics or what do you... Well, yeah, that would be a great example. One example. Yeah, and pesticides, herbicides, you know, PCBs, others. So we made great headway in many respects, but unfortunately the curve of destruction is still going up steeper because population growth is relentless. You know, that's the source of most of the pressures and problems to rivers. So there are, the, there are these challenges that continue to arise and to grow worse, even as some other aspects of river protection are, are getting better. But I remain hopeful because I've seen the growth of the positive side of that throughout my career. I see more people being engaged and involved in rivers. And I see people who who want to do something meaningful with their lives. And they realize that the earth is in big trouble. You know, it's very difficult for an informed person to be optimistic today because there's so many problems. But people want to engage and to do something, yet the problems can be overwhelming. But adopting your own river is something that anyone can do where they live at a scale that enables them to be part of the fate of that place, to be part of the local politics and the decisions affecting their stream or their river. And so, River conservation gives many of us an open door to being able to influence the outcome and the fate of these places where we live. And it's one that can be done, hopefully, because here's a discrete feature, a river, you know, with identifiable problems, whether Mm -hmm. it's pollution or development along the stream banks or a dam being proposed or whatever. They're really... um, specific problems that we can address. There are organizations formed to deal with all of this. All we have to do is join them, and they will tell us how we can become more involved. They need us in that respect, and we need them to represent us in bigger levels of politics 
and to help us figure out what to do. So all of this, I think, makes the future much more hopeful, of course, than it would otherwise be, and, and actually more hopeful than it was when I first started out working on river conservation decades ago. So I just encourage people to engage, to go to your local stream, learn about it, become involved in the, the local politics around it, vote for people who will protect our earth and our streams rather than those that don't. Teach others, especially children. Join groups and an organization and with you know that combined willpower, we feel a lot stronger and a lot more capable. And we feel like we're not alone in this effort. So all of those things give me hope and a reason to move ever onward for the good of our rivers and our earth. Well, thank you so much for your part in moving the needle in a hopeful direction over the course of your life and your career. You've given your own self-hope through that action, (laughs) and that's helped give hope to the rest of us. So truly, deeply, thank you so much for doing that work and helping guide people into that work as well. Thank you, Clark. It's really been fun to be with you here today. Tim reminds us how much rivers have to give. At Forever Our Rivers, we're giving back. We want to make it easier for you to spend time in or near clean and healthy rivers. We partner with organizations across the West to keep your rivers healthy. To join us, head to foreverourrivers.org to subscribe to our newsletter, rate and share this podcast. Visit our bookshop, bookshop.org slash shop slash foreverourrivers to find new inspiration. Thank you for joining us today. We hope to see you out on the river soon. 